Guide to the Apocalypse. In our first season, you and I are uncovering what the archetype of the apocalypse has to teach us, particularly in these times of disruption, pain, and uncertainty. As we explore the psychological meaning, we're going to dive deep into your inner world so you can discover where and how you need to grow. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Today's podcast is sponsored by me and my voracious reading habit. Now until July 13th, 2020, you can enter for a chance to win my seven favorite books for the existentially curious. You can check out all the details in today's show notes. And I want to remind you that if you enjoy this podcast, do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of that business. Let's dive in. It was but yesterday that we met in a dream. But now our sleep has fled and our dream is over and it is no longer dawn. I was daydreaming on the tram. The words of Cahil Gabrine reverberating in my head, though I had read them the night before. I had read late into the night, a small flashlight under the covers of the hard-bound library book. And then I had hurried to hide away both in my suitcase when the red neon lights on the alarm clock flashed 12.01 a.m. I didn't know how I knew it, but this book felt much more forbidden than any of the others, even the scintillating romance novels that were buried in the basement with all sorts of other books that were never really all that interesting, like a biography of the baseball player turned evangelical preacher Billy Sunday. And though I had no logical reason for it then, my intuition was absolutely correct. When I was 13, Cahill Gabrine should have been off-limits. Way, way off-limits. The mystics always should be to rigid believers. The visions they had, the poems they imagined, those were dangerous to the contented, closed-minded life. Sitting on the tram, though, I paid little attention to the trek from our hotel to the entrance of the park. I was too busy wondering what the poet meant when he said things like, What fragments of your own self would you discard so you may be free? What did it mean to have fragments of yourself? How could you distinguish them from your whole self? Or was your whole self a kind of mosaic that just hadn't been pieced together yet? Did we all begin as fragmented? Or was it sin that had shattered us? What sin? What was my original sin that led to all of the others? I pondered and I pondered, and all of a sudden, like a door slammed by someone you love, a voice woke me from my reverie. Ladies and gentlemen, please collect your belongings, watch your head and step, and take small children by the hand. Enjoy your day at the Magic Kingdom. Disney World is not a dystopian hellscape. At least, it wasn't last time I checked. But it is a handy map for what we're exploring over the course of this whole next season, The Thinker's Guide to the Apocalypse. For all the storied history of this word, at its literal Greek root, it merely means to uncover, to reveal, or to unveil. 
Generally, the shit we cover up is painful to reveal, and so many of the apocalyptic prophecies have predicted an uncovering of what we most want to hide. AKA, apocalypse is the means by which we unveil what we most want to hide, and what we most need to know if we're really going to live life, and not just get buried in the many layers of personal defense and systematic oppression. The season is not an in-depth historical and literary examination of apocalyptic literature. Though, truthfully, I'm not lying when I say to you that would be super fun, probably more for me than for you. Instead, this season is an invitation to wake up to your own apocalypse, the changes it will demand of you, and the potential for you to live life in a new way. And so today, in this season's very first episode, The Prophecy, I'm welcoming you to the apocalypse. It might feel like your first, but I can all but guarantee you just slept through the others. So, wake the fuck up, and buckle up your psyche, because we're about to explore the theme park of the apocalypse. We begin, much like I did on that day way back when, waiting outside the gates, searching for our tickets. Apocalypse can only happen in a container, whether that container is a world, a country, a system of operating, a family. It, it has to happen in an enclosed space, in an enclosed system. And the price of admission into that system is always heartbreak. It's not a price whether you get to decide to pay or not. We are all compelled to pay, whether or not we want to. There's just no getting off the grid. You belong to humankind no matter how alienated you feel or wish you were. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Way back when, you didn't know. You didn't know when you were born into this world, ushered through the gates of life, that apocalypse was part and parcel of the bargain. Main Street USA is a bustle of life, energy, and more sweets than you could ever hope to consume. It smells... It smells like every country fair, and its capitalistic arms are open wide, welcoming you to the illusion of equality that you will come to find is a pretty poor substitute for equity. Main Street promises the American dream, as James Thoreau Adams propositioned way back in the 1930s, the American dream is where life is better and richer and fuller for everyone with the opportunity for each according to their ability or achievement. A dream of social order in which each and every man, woman, and child shall be able to attain their fullest stature of which they are neatly capable, and to be recognized for others for what they are, regardless of fortuitous circumstances of birth or position. I should mention, though, that James Thoreau Adams was a good historian, but he also was born to wealth, and he often lamented both our lack of it and how much better things used to be. There's a kind of innocence, I think, in imagining a world of that kind, where others would see you for what you are, rather than all of what they project, fairly or unjustly. Circumstances of birth, of what makes your body and mind and the relationships that are given to you you don't get to choose those and what they are matter 
and often determine how broadly and how long you'll see the world as kind and welcoming. Let me be more concrete, though. Whiteness, maleness, wealth, and social positioning, and the memory of wealth that may or may not go with it, nationality, cisgender identity, straightness, able-bodiedness, not to mention right-bodiedness, fitting into whatever the markers of beauty of the moment are, no matter how unrealistic they may be, the appearance and performance of health, education, and the credentials you put after your name, the list could go on and on and on. But each of these are markers of privilege, which really is just a nuanced way of talking about power conveyed on one for how one appears over and above what one actually is. When you lack some or all of the markers of privilege, surviving, never mind thriving, becomes a game with huge odds stacked against you. But Main Street USA... Main Street USA feels like a place that you could buy innocence if you lack it. (sighs) That's just another lie. No one can buy innocence. You're born with it, and you lose it much quicker than you'd imagine. All that privilege buys is ignorance, which is a pretty poor substitute. After all, with the right Instagram filter or political affiliation, ignorance can masquerade as innocence quite convincingly. Thus, the innocence and the loss of it is always the first harbinger of the apocalypse. And it must always be directly followed by the warning. You must wake up. You must divest yourself of the illusion of your innocence if you're ever going to see things for what they actually are. It can be challenging to unlock the shackles of enchantment and to choose instead to see the fragmentation and complexity of life. In order to fulfill the dream, you have to wake up to reality. Which, as it turns out, is a harder task than it seems. But if we fail at it, the rest of the apocalypse will not just feel like a nightmare. It will be one. Main Street USA starts to lose its savor. I'm sure you understand why. And so we move on to Adventureland, which, despite its name, is initially pretty boring. There's a lot of waiting in this deeper experience of the apocalypse. Waiting becomes our new rhythm, waiting in line for rides, for toilet paper, or for Dr. Anthony Fauci to tell us that, yes, it's true, a vaccine has finally been found. The waiting happens inside, too. Really, I think it happens inside far more than it ever becomes externalized. And in the waiting, you begin to tell yourself stories. Some are horrific, but many, most, seek to self-soothe. You tell yourself things like, it will be over soon, that there's going to be a reward at the end of all this endless, endless waiting. The environment will be able to breathe again. Your company will finally realize that working from home is viable, and you can permanently kiss your commute goodbye. Or, maybe, It's that you remind yourself of how you'll save the overtime pay as you deliver food to those sequestered inside, or how you'll find another job. You'll keep your place to live. You'll be okay. Things will be okay. Soon everything will return to normal. Or the new normal. Or something that just fucking isn't this. There will be freedom again. There will be stability again. You can allow yourself to hope. You can allow yourself to believe that things really aren't that bad. 
But eventually, in the waiting, a new sensation will start to take hold. Something will move on just the periphery of your vision. It's probably just a character in costume with an oversized head that's meant to welcome you, to convey hospitality, to excite you. But you're going to have a very different reaction. Your inner child will have a visceral reaction. The character will not look friendly. It will look monstrous. Your heart's rhythm begins to pick up, your blood determined to run away from the pressure that's building. A trickle of sweat will weave its way down your spine. Your lungs become greedy, wanting quicker, shorter breaths to assure them that things are okay, that there is enough for you to keep on going. Shouldn't come as a surprise, the rising panic. After all, it's been threatening to intervene since the shedding of your innocence. But you've learned to quell it. Maybe you've learned to quell it long ago. But panic always enters like a most unwelcome and unexpected guest. Fritz Pearls, who I particularly like, and we could talk about him another day, he proclaimed long ago that fear is just excitement without breath. And that is what this feels like this struggle to breathe, and this feels like all the places and spaces where oxygen and peace were scarce, hoarded by everyone who was not you. You start to look all around, and suddenly there are monsters, I'm sorry, characters in costume everywhere, and there are no family-friendly characters here. You can sense the Pennywise under every Donald Duck and Goofy. What you most greatly fear in yourself has become amplified in the monstrous. What you hate, what you fear, what disgusts you, it's waiting to pose in photographs with you, highlighting all the places you are not what you wish you were, and what and who you most fear you actually are. You will wish to avoid drawing close to those characters, so cheerfully demonstrating your flaws. But you mustn't. Just as Main Street required you to shed your innocence, Adventure Land demands your bravery to see what lurks under the mask, to see the monstrous that you hide inside, to not disintegrate into shame, but to choose the harder path, the reality of human limitation, and the call to grow, even when it terrifies you. You see, when we can transform the monster inside from something feared and ignored to something respect and tamed, we discover how much easier it is to subdue and vanquish the monsters that occupy the places of power. There will always be more characters in the park, some clearly monsters, some subtle illusions of goodness. Those are actually the trickiest kind of monster to defeat, because we're not really sure we want to vanquish the things that reflect to us what we've always longed to be, even when we're not sure it's a realistic or healthy dream. And so when I propose we move on, you don't argue with me, and instead you lead the way into the next portion of the park. Frontierland could be easy to miss. After all, it's tucked away in a back corner, but it holds the most attractive attractions. Totally worth going out of the way for. We see the signs for Splash Mountain and Big Thunder Railroad, and a kind of shiver of excitement enters a far more pleasant emotion than the panic that had been rising. 
And all of this feels like a kind of reward for all the hard work of living through the waiting and the panic, not to mention confronting the monsters in your soul. And this actually would be quite a happy ending, if this is where the apocalypse ended. We shut our ignorance and innocence, we confronted and defeated the monsters, and we're rewarded with some thrills and some chills. I mean, is there any time that it's not horrifically hot in Florida? Because for my New England born and bred bones, anything over 68 is way too hot. Back to the point, though. This could be the end of the story. We could move on to our next subject. Except, that's not how the apocalypse works. The things you most long for often are the most horrific. You remember those stories you told yourself in the waiting? The ones that didn't soothe you and you shoved away into the corner of your heart? Well, they're back now, and they're ready to permeate your very being, shake you to the core. In ordinary life, life outside the theme park of the apocalypse, we call these horrific stories catastrophizing. We say things like, that would never happen, you're just overreacting, it's really not as bad as you think. Except, catastrophe is often just an imagined reenactment of what has happened before, and what you will fear will happen again. It's not so different than the monsters we carry inside. Except catastrophe says more about the world we live in, rather than the parts of us we want to avoid seeing. And so it begins with the thrum of horror. A tremble that starts low in our gut, rippling out into a shudder. It's different than the panic that preceded it. A panic is a kind of imploding, shutting down our automatic responses, battering down the hatches at the potential loss of our life. Horror? Horror explodes more vividly and brilliantly than any fireworks Disney's Imagineers ever created. Fireworks emanate out of your very being. And that only sounds like a metaphor. It's not. It's excruciating when it happens. It threatens total annihilation if you cannot find a way to contain it. In the meanwhile, it erodes the thin places within you, leaking out blood from a wound. Horror cannot be soothed away. It can only be seen or forcibly forgotten. And yet, it cannot be seen. It's just too goddamn hot. It looks like the flames of our hell. It would disintegrate every part of us if we looked at it full on. Decomposition at warp speed. But to forget it feels impossible. It burns colder than any arctic wind. Frost, Robert, not the mythical character from The Abominable Snowman, he wrote long ago, debating within himself. Which did he prefer, fire or ice? There's no choice here. You must have both. And yet, how can you? And so enters the dissonance, where the opposites must unite if you have any hope of survival. The secrets of how to do so are veiled and require the courage to let the bottom drop out. You know the sensation. You get it right before the roller coaster coasts over the edge, trading your measured calm and the illusion of control for something wilder and more dangerous. Freedom. Or what our forefounders like to call liberty. Technically, 
when we leave Frontierland, we have to cross back through Adventureland. And I'm telling you here and now, we will encounter more monsters that we missed the first time around. And let's be real. We'll never encounter all the many characters in our psyche or Disney World, no matter how long we spend there. But the second and third and 50th and 180th time around, it starts to feel more easy. We start to get better at recognizing the monsters for what they are. Often we can get stuck in the loop of monster confronting and horror confronting, circling back again and again and again, until eventually somehow we're not totally sure we find our way out to Liberty Square. When we finally arrive, you'll likely wonder what the fuss was all about. Feels familiar. Though the longer you're here, the more it starts to feel a little bit like the Upside Down or the Twilight Zone. Somehow both a reflection and bleak reaction to Main Street USA. The Hall of Presidents will beckon. And you're eager, after all the decentering activity of the previous lands, to finally bask in the certainty that wiser ones than you are in charge and will keep everything safe. Except, when you sit down in the audience, the fathers of a nation, the ones that you were relying on, the ones that you had so much hope pent up for, they turn out to be nothing more than robotic puppets, powered by an unseen hand. Depending on the era, and I suppose the political party, artificial intelligence would be welcome in contrast to what currently bunkers down behind a wall of his own making. You know, that narcissistic first grader in an elderly man's body? Or, I'll be concrete, Donald Trump for those of you who are less astute. The Antichrist has many forms. It's particularly difficult to recognize when they look like, think like, act like you. No one could blame you for seeking relief from the disorientation of manufactured reality. Except, was it really a good idea to go to a place where horror is meant to reside? You know, the haunted mansion? It's filled with ghouls and ghosts. And really, it's just another prefabricated reality. This one mystical rather than political. Foolish mortal that you are, you enter seeking relief and are only offered the grotesque and the macabre. In retrospect, climbing on something called a doom buggy should have been fair enough warning. The beast, the beast comes in many forms. The primal lures just as often as charisma, and both have the power to transform you, though I'm not sure either would be for good. In your eagerness to find respite from the bottom dropping out and the many monsters you've discovered hiding in you, you are willing to embrace what was once alive, but has long since died. Anything to drown out the overwhelm of what the real is. The enemy is rarely unfamiliar. The enemy represents all of what you wished you could leave behind. The past haunts and threatens to maintain the status quo, and keep it forever and ever, amen. Your horror, your rage, your disgust, these are all what will fuel the hero in disguise. They will require every ounce of the hope you've ever held, and more courage than you've ever dreamed of having, if you have any hope of defeating the enemy that lives in you. The hero... The hero's always the underdog in the theme park of the apocalypse. 
Frequently, he's murdered in the street, like Revelation's two witnesses, or Eric Gardner, or George Floyd. Or she's murdered in her bed, like Brianna Taylor, or Revelation's Queen of Babylon. Happy endings are never guaranteed. This isn't a Disney movie, after all. All this talk of enemies and heroes, it's hard to hold. And it just ushers you right into fantasy land. You don't even realize that you're entering until you're already there. The other lands were a cakewalk compared to this one. Oh, it, it doesn't seem that way on the surface. There are none of Adventureland's monsters. Instead, beautiful, smiling princesses greet you. Frontierland's panic-inducing roller coasters are replaced by soothing rides. The regal carousel, the sedate boat ride through, it's a small world, after all. And the childish foolishness of the spinning teacups of the mad tea party. And it has none, absolutely none, of Liberty Square's monuments to horror. None of these reside in Fantasyland. Instead, you're welcomed by the sight, the iconic sight of Cinderella's castle. It's always actually astonished me that they named it after her. She was an outsider. She's beautiful, she's perfect, martyred Cinderella, who triumphed over all that was evil, but, like, definitely from the outside. Strange that they would call it after her. Fantasy, though. Fantasy is a powerful drug. It will drain you of every sensibility, except the compulsion to continue to imbibe, no matter the cost. The promise is that this land, this land offers a place where dreams really do come true. It's a land that you may have heard in a lullaby, or maybe during a multi-level marketing scheme. Excuse me, <laughs> network marketing opportunity. This land promises you a capitalistic rebrand of the American dream. And it doesn't really cost all that much. Just your heart and your soul in 1995 on recurring payments for the rest of your life. Oh, but what you get in return... Oh, you get the certainty that you are the hero. You're not only the star of the show, but you're also the writer and director. You defeated the beast within and without, and thus you deserve your reward of a castle and a highly attractive royal partner of your choosing. Not to mention the accolades. Fantasyland assures you that this is the last stop on the apocalyptic journey. You've made it to the ultimate good place. Enchantment offers to bind you again, and you are sorely tempted. Who wouldn't be? This is the perfect ending to the story. But if you look closely you'll discover that this paradise is filled with false friends. Underneath the illusion, you'll see that this, as the poet T.S. Eliot once told us, this is the dead land. The hope only of empty men. And we have to remember that life is very long, especially between the desire and the descent. And if we stay here too long, we will discover the way the world ends. Fantasy land is the hardest to overcome because it demands we look reality straight in the face and embrace it. The defeat, not only of fantasy land, but of all the challenges of the apocalypse, stipulates that we surrender to reality, not become enchanted with the mask that the enemy wears and the golden shackles that the enemy offers. And reality really fucking hurts. We like to pretend it away, but all relationships end, 
in death, divorce, or just physical and emotional distance. Those in power abuse it. Those without power suffer. Your favorite show gets canceled. Your favorite friend gets cancer. The earth is destroyed by privilege's arrogance, and white supremacy eats up black and indigenous and people of color like a bag of Cheez-Its. It's impossible to eat just one serving. You, I, white supremacy, we just keep in reaching in for more and more and more. The world gets darker, bleaker, and the pain becomes more and more excruciating. And all of that's just a two-sentence synopsis of the pain of reality. If you clicked read more, we'd be here for at least another century, just listing off each and every individual and global pain. And that's not even touching the joy that exists in lockstep with all the pain. The prophet of Gabrin's making declares that the deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. Fantasy never offers joy. Soothing? Sure. Some erotic and intellectual release? Absolutely. But joy? Joy is too ordinary for fantasy. Joy is the first sip of tea on a sleepy cold morning. It's a friend hugging you after what feels like decades apart. It's the trust of a small creature, maybe human, or maybe a snapping turtle that accidentally found its way into your backyard. A small creature who searches for your eyes when they're scared. Fantasy sometimes tries to replicate joy, but all it comes up with are daydreams of pleasure available on demand, offering the illusion of happiness. We could debate endlessly of what happiness and joy actually are, but to me, happiness is the first flush of joy. It's that first sip. And joy is like the wine that has been well-aged, full of depth and complexity. Because really, the prophet was right when he said that joy and sorrow are inseparable. So ultimately, two are the enemy and the hero. When we unmask the monsters and the princesses, we discover again and again that they are only projections of both who we most fear and long to be. But underneath, they're still us. By embracing that reality, we defeat the fantasy. And in the defeat is also the celebration that once terrified and seduced you. It all was just another mystery to uncover, another secret to unveil. When we choose the heartbreak of reality over the fairy tale, we're free to celebrate the truth of who we are and who we long to be. And once you recognize the ordinary, underneath the fantasy and the horrific, the nightmare of the apocalypse starts to shift. Dread starts to make way for hope, anxiety for anticipation. You begin to plan next steps. You're full of fervor, fired up to transform your world and your life with all you've learned in this mysterious theme park. And as we leave Fantasyland, you start to be filled with expansive hand gestures, and your voice gets deeper and more resounding. And I say to you, oh, you'd make any televangelist proud. And you, you're ready to stand up and make a difference. You are on fire, filled with epiphanies and dreams of change. The carousel of progress beckons with the dual allure of nostalgia and the promise that things will be brighter and better tomorrow. You even begin to hum absentmindedly to yourself. There's a great big beautiful tomorrow, shining at the end of every day. Everything seems possible. 
Limits? Limits only exist for the unawakened. You. You, my friend, have woke the fuck up, and you're ready to go. And thus, we've been ushered into the most dangerous part of the apocalypse. Welcome, my friend, to Armageddon. Today, masquerading as Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland feels mostly like an early draft of Epcot, except for Space Mountain. There's nothing in the whole of Disney World and the Disney Universe that feels quite like it. Before you climb aboard Space Mountain, you need to know just the teensiest bit about Megiddo, which has been humanity's favorite battlefield by far. Megiddo, more commonly known by its Greek name, Armageddon, it isn't actually a mountain. It's a tell, which is an artificial mound formed by the accumulated remains of generations and generations of people living on the same site for thousands and thousands of years. It once, once upon a time, it was a plane, but people's shit really piles up. And over time, it takes on the appearance of a mountain, even when it is not one. Space Mountain, much like the infamous Megiddo, isn't a mountain. It's an encapsulated tour of the universe that ends with the rider coming a hair's breadth away from entering a wormhole, a bridge between widely separated regions of space and time. Or maybe, less pseudoscientifically, a wormhole is a kind of trap door, tunneling you back to when things weren't so complicated or painful, or at the very least, back to the possibility of innocence. When you disembark from the ride, the feeling of a return to innocence is nearly in your grasp, but it flees from your hands like a dream half-forgotten, and all you're left with is the final dilemma. And the final dilemma isn't a puzzle, it's a war. All that came before in the apocalypse, culminating in fantasy land, was just prelude. It was a duel between your many parts of self, offering a death and a rebirth of how you understand your own small tiny person. Tomorrowland, it offers the end of the world as we know it. And the war isn't about you. It's about us. We've fought it before and we'll do it again. The war demands that we learn the answer to the riddle that haunts all who have lived through the apocalypse. How do you live freely without replicating what came before? As you walk out of Tomorrowland and away from the battlefield, you're finally disarmed of every last illusion and defense. They say at funerals that naked you came into this world and naked you leave again. This naked vulnerability, it's no innocence. Something more like wisdom. Or maybe death. You wouldn't know, never having experienced the latter. The war lives in you long after it's done. You realize now, that's the whole point. And so, we end where we began. Main Street, USA. Where the parade seems like kind of, I don't know, like the end credits, filled with all of the figures from your apocalyptic tour. Monsters and princesses alike wave graciously to you from their floats. The smiles that may have felt sickeningly sweet at the beginning of all this now they seem more knowing, seeking to offer solidarity and comfort in the wake of all you've been through. And this has all been exhausting. Exhilarating at points, yes, of course. 
but mostly exhausting. The urge after it is all done, after it's all ended, is just to go back to sleep. Allow this to fade into a memory of something you've lived through, rather than how you choose to continue to live. Main Street USA offers again to sell you ignorance, packaged as innocence. And you are far more tempted to buy it now than you were before. And as you're reaching out to touch a hat, a soft, fierce voice intervenes. Stop. Startled, you look, you stop, looking for where the voices come from. Even while underneath all your posturing, you know that the call is coming from inside the house. It always is coming from inside the house. Everything in and outside you seems to still. And despite all you've seen and experienced in this tour of the apocalypse, it's the stillness that feels the most magical. The apocalypse has been hell-bent on pushing you through, rolling you like a tumbleweed in one of those old westerns that were the sole reason that your grandfather, okay, my grandfather, learned how to use the TiVo. When you stop and stand still, you're filled with magic. It offers strength and grace and just a smattering of courage. And you realize that this is another Greek word. It's a Kairos moment that your tarot card-loving Facebook friends talk endlessly of. This is a moment beyond time. Right now. So stop what you're doing. Pull the car over. Stop washing the dishes. Sit your ass down and listen. Can you hear it? It's whispering. And you're too busy thinking about the metamorphosis of all the gods you've always held dear, of all the fundamental principles and symbols that have kept you imprisoned in this cave of self. Stop thinking so loudly. Listen. Listen to what the apocalypse has been singing to you ever since you entered the gate of existence. What it's been calling to you all along the way. Don't go back to sleep. As you walk to the entrance and back out the gates, you may realize that eternal wakefulness is a fair price for all the bequest of the apocalypse. In the end is the beginning, and, and this is very much the beginning of the beginning. And so, honored friends, I urge you to collect your cherished beliefs and other psychic belongings. Watch your head and step, and take your tender heart by the hand. Today was only the map to the journey that we're undertaking. And while all of this may have just seemed like an exercise in allegorical rhetoric, the fact is, the secret meaning isn't a secret. We must wake up to reality. We must stop hiding in our many defenses and fears. And we must, we must do something about the world as it is now. Because if we don't, well, the world really will be truly and fully fucked. So, I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you to join me for the rest of the season as we dive deep into each aspect of the apocalypse, beginning next week with the innocents. I'm inviting you to join me to conquer the monsters that you have inside, to transform your fantasy into reality 
and to take action. To not just think deeply, but to live boldly. Welcome to the Thinker's Guide to the Apocalypse. Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your death, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. I'd love for you to head over to therapyforthinkers.com slash reading habit to learn how you can enter for a chance to win my seven favorite books for the existentially curious. Remember, you only have till July 12th, 2020 to enter for your chance to win. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As G.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.